Isaiah 9. So as we, uh, as we look at Isaiah chapter 9 this morning, the announcement of Christ, uh, Isaiah's prophecy of the coming Messiah, um, <clears throat> I just want to consider a few things. Uh, we're going to be starting at verse 6 and 7. Well, let's just read that, that first and then, and then we'll go on. Uh, Isaiah chapter 9, starting in verse 6, it says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So the first thing that I want to look at when we... uh uh, begin to look at this passage is uh, he's talking about the government being on the shoulders of Christ. That's what I want to focus on today. But when we think of that, we're not talking specifically about the form of, of government that we see in our nation or any other nation. We're talking about the culture of God's kingdom that he has established being at work in in the hearts of God's people and then expressed to the world through uh, what Christ is doing in us. So that's overall what we're talking about here today. But the first thing that I want to look at here is how significant this announcement is. Uh, and the government will be on his shoulders. How significant that is in, in the uh, nation of Israel. At the time, if you go back to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 8, we're going to read some of that today, but we see that... Uh, God's desire was always for him to be the king of his people. His desire was never for Israel to have kings. That wasn't what God's plan was for them. We'll see in this this passage in 1 Samuel 8 uh, that God was their king and the people rejected him so that they could be like the rest of the nations of the world. And then I want to talk briefly about uh, what it looks like when we reject our king. First uh, Samuel chapter 8, starting verse 1, it says, When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as judges for Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abiha, and the third was Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations. But when they said, Give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, Listen to all the peop- listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they, are re- they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me, serving other gods, so they are doing that to you. Listen to them, but warn them solemnly, and let them know what the king will, uh, the king who will reign over them will do. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people of. I put my note over my words here. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, "This is what the king who will reign over you will do." 
Uh, he will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots. And he goes through all of this list of ways that the kings would oppress the people and take from them and force them into service. And then in verse 19, it says, But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then, then we will be like all the other nations with the king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. The Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. Then Samuel said to the men of Israel, everyone go back to his town. So the, the first thing that we see here is, uh, I, I think a lot of times we misunderstand the judgment of God. A lot of times we're thinking of God as some... Uh, force up in the sky that's waiting to drop the hammer on us when we mess up. And that's not God's way of punishing people at all. His way of punishing people is to simply give them what they want. We see that in Romans chapter 1. If you go through that, it talks about how people, uh, th- what is known, what, what God, His glory, all that He is, is, is clearly seen in nature. It is revealed. Every person knows it in some way. They are aware of it. But there are people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They actively suppress it by the things that they want to pursue. And if you read through that passage, it goes on to talk about how God eventually gives them over to their sinful desires. So what we're talking about in the judgment of God is God saying to you, okay, if this is what you want, go ahead. Ultimately, that's what we're talking about when we talk about hell. We're not talking about God sending somebody to hell. God doesn't do that. People make a decision to separate themselves from God and pursue this. They make a decision to be separate from God for eternity. He says, if you don't want to be with me, if you don't want a relationship with me, okay, go ahead. That is what the punishment of God is. And we see that uh, over and over. The results of that, any person who's been a Christian for a long time, who has lived their life their own way, can tell you that Outside of living in the principles of God, we have uh, every all likelihood in the world of messing up our life beyond uh, repair. Making our own decisions, doing things our own way, pursuing uh, whatever we desire in our natural heart, we will mess things up. That's the way it works. God's punishment is simply just saying to someone, okay, if that's what you want, go ahead. And he listed all of these things that would result from them wanting an earthly king, and they said, we want it anyway. We want to be like the rest of the nations of the world. You understand that there's times where we do the same exact thing in, in our lives. We have all these things, the principles of the Word of God that tell you, if you pursue these things, this is how life's going to go for you. And sometimes we choose that anyway because we want to be like everyone else. We want to have the same things as everyone else. So the point is, it seems crazy to us in this moment, looking back and seeing Israel reject God as their king. But there are so many times that we do the same exact things, where we have all of the principles of God telling us how we should live, how we should relate to Him, how we can have communion and peace and fellowship with Him. And instead, we choose all of these other things of the world because we want to be like everybody else, have the things everybody else has, and we reject God as king. But they, they rejected God who desired to be their king and desired to have human government over themselves. They desired to have someone in authority on the earth over them. Uh, and, and if we go through all of that, we see in the history of Israel, these, these are just a few. There were, If you go through all of the kings of Israel and Judah, uh, 
there were not many that were good kings. They were almost all evil. I think there was something like eight or nine uh, good kings out of the 40-something. I can't remember exactly the numbers. Uh, but the vast majority, probably about 75% of them, were evil kings and did their own thing and ignored the purposes of God for the people. These are just some of those things. Uh, Jeroboam, the king of uh, Israel, he built the high places, uh, meaning they, they were places to worship pagan gods. He built places to worship pagan gods. He appointed priests from any tribe, not just Levi. Now that might sound insignificant, but in that moment, uh, under that covenant, God had set, of, set aside the Levites. The tribe of Levi was to be the priests, no one else. You see, in that moment, he, all of the tribes of Israel had their own piece of land. They had a place that they would have to go, but the tribe of Levi was to work the temple, to be the priests of God, and that was to be their inheritance, all of those things. So he, Jeroboam goes on then to do whatever he felt necessary. He appointed other people outside of that tribe uh, to be priests, which in God's eyes was a very, very uh, bad thing. And then we have Omri who made... Uh, he was made king out of popular popular rebellion. He established idolatry in Israel. We have Ahab, uh, the king of Israel, promoted worship of Baal with his wife Jezebel. Rehoboam, the king of Judah, ignored the counsel of wise men. He treated people harshly, causing division uh, of Israel and Judah, adopted pagan worship. We have Ahaz, sacrificed, sacrificed his son to Molech, replaced God's altar with one like Assyria's and again, these are just a few of the things that happened uh, in, in the, the multiple kings of Israel. And this was a direct result of the people rejecting God as their king, wanting to be like everybody else of the world. Uh, and we see over and over through the, the years of Israel under the kings where they would worship God for a while and then they would fall away. And they would worship God for a while and then they would fall away. And there was so much hardship because they rejected God as their king. They wanted human government. They wanted human protection. They wanted this figure in some palace they could look at and see that as their human government that would protect them from everything else in the world. They wanted something they could see, and they rejected God as king. Now, what we see when it comes down to it, then, is that the government, the human government of Israel was corrupt for the most part. We see that in our world. We see that over and over through the world there have been governments, kingdoms, nations that have been established and they might work well for a while and eventually they collapse. We see dictators who have oppressed people for their own personal gain. We see uh, over the years in history we see millions and millions of people being slaughtered uh, for the sake uh, of, of the, sometimes simply the reputation of governing authorities. What we are saying here overall is that there is no human institution, there is no human organization or structure or government or ruling authority that can ever replace the governing authority of God in the hearts of men. What we are pursuing is something from a different place, something that transcends the fallible government systems of men, the, fouling, the fallible uh, uh, authority that is given to man that, that so easily corrupts people when they come to the place of getting some sort of authority in life. 
so what we're talking about today, when he says the government will be on his shoulders, talking about Christ to come. For to us a child is born, the son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. What we are talking about is there is a system, there is a ruling authority, there is a power, uh, a dominion that exists that transcends this world in Christ that we are able to walk in now. It's not something that we look off in the distance in the future Hoping eventually, you know, there there are people who believe that eventually that the, the kingdom of God is going to be established literally in Israel on earth. We're talking about a kingdom that is not bound by landmarks. It's not, it's not a boundary on a map. We're not talking about uh, some sort of palace. We're not talking about anything of that nature. We're talking about a kingdom that exists now that was set up by Christ as he hung on the cross, as he rose again. And it is in heaven where God exists. And the culture of that kingdom, the culture of that kingdom works in the people of God to change them, to make them subjects of this kingdom, and then invades this earth and sets up. The Bible says when we read uh, the Lord's Prayer, it says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. And we are talking about what happens in heaven being established in earth through the people of God who are being transformed to reflect the culture of God's kingdom. So we, as the people of God, are transformed through the Holy Spirit to reflect the culture of his kingdom. So what we're talking about here today is two drastically different kingdoms. We have the kingdoms of this world that they come and go, they oppress people, they, uh, they might do good for a little while and eventually they fail, but we have a kingdom that is set up today that will never end, that will never fail, that affects the people of God and then affects the earth through them. That's what we're talking about today. Uh, so the first thing that we have to understand is the mercy of God that uh, uh, sent his son for us. In verse six, uh, Isaiah 9, verse 6, it says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. To us, meaning for our benefit. For your benefit. That's, that's what the prophecy meant when Isaiah was speaking this in that moment. For your benefit, a son is going to be given. For the people of God, for the people that need him, for the people of the earth, a son is given for your benefit. And the government of God's kingdom will be on his shoulders invading the earth uh, transforming people to reflect that government. But that was so merciful. Number one, after re- remembering that just, uh, you know, years before that, that the Israelites had rejected God as their king. So you could imagine, uh, how merciful and compassionate God is to look on those people and say, I am your king. If you're going to reject me, go ahead, do what you want. And after years and years, that God would be there waiting to say, you've done your own thing. For now, you've made a mess of it. And for you, a child will be given. For you, for your benefit, the people that have rejected me as king, I will once again send a child with the culture of heaven established in his authority to govern the hearts of his people. And you will live at peace again with me. So the mercy of God that would set up this kingdom, that would establish this kingdom and give a son for our benefit, uh, he gave that for the people that were walking in the darkness of their own 
uh, own desires, the people in the darkness of sin, the people walking in the darkness of, of unbelief, the people walking in, in the darkness of ignorance, the people that were walking in the darkness of uh, the places where they were kings who were oppressing people, those kings that were walking in darkness. Uh, we read the last few weeks, we talked about this in Luke chapter 1, starting verse 78, it says, Because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven, uh, to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. And Isaiah 9, 2 says this, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in a land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. So we're talking about the people walking in darkness, people who would desire to do uh, things their own way in life and reject God a king, as king. And in that then, Walking in darkness, they have rejected their light. They have rejected everything that would give them hope and peace in life and the light to understand the correct path. They've rejected all of that and they have been walking in darkness and in death and in sin. And then God speaks into this moment out of his mercy and says, For your benefit, a son will be given and the government of my kingdom will be on his shoulders and we will once again set up a kingdom where people walk in the, the, the purposes of God, the, the peace and joy and righteousness of, of walking with God. Uh, so the, the thing that we have to understand in this also is that uh, the people in that moment, I think we talked about it last week, last week but the people were not looking for... Uh, this Messiah that would come the way Christ did. They were looking exactly what they rejected God for. They were rejecting God so that they would have this, this figure in Israel, uh, to be, uh, their, their source of hope, their source of, uh, authority in the lands around. They were looking for this king to be set up on earth. But God's plan was drastically different. God's plan was to do something within the hearts of man. You see, they didn't, they didn't necessarily understand what was necessary for their hearts to be transformed. They didn't understand that there was something different that had to happen in them. That for them to gain peace, that they had to have something established in their hearts. You see, in that moment, they went through all of the re- religious regulations. They worshipped by offering sacrifices. They worshipped by going into the temple and performing all the duties that were necessary for that to happen. But they didn't understand that God was seeking to set up a kingdom that would be established in the hearts of people to transform our hearts to reflect who he is. Not for us to be a political kingdom. It wasn't, his purpose was never for us to just be a people who was established on the earth as a kingdom and everybody else was under that kingdom. That was, that's not God's purpose. It never was. It wasn't from the beginning. His purpose was always to have a spiritual people who would walk in the peace and confidence and, and joy of having communion and fellowship with him. So God's desire was totally contradictory to what the people desired and wanted in that moment. It was totally opposed to everything they were thinking was going to happen. We see this in uh, even the uh, the apostles in uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 6. It says, so when they met together, this was after Christ uh, was raised from the dead. In 1, 6, he says, so when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? So even after... They walked with Christ. 
They saw his teaching. They had communion and fellowship with him. Still, after all of this, they still thought that he was going to restore the kingdom of Israel, meaning make it a political, make it a political kingdom, make it uh, an authority on the earth. They thought that he was coming to raise up the kingdom of Israel above everything else. That's what they were looking for still in that moment. Uh, they were looking for uh, to be set free from the bondage of the Romans, to be restored to their former state of freedom or prosperity, as in the times of David or Solomon. Uh, we also see this in Luke chapter 19 in verse 11. It says, while they were listening to, to Jesus, he wanted to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem, and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. Uh, and then Luke 24, this is on the road to Emmaus, the, the followers of Christ uh, they were disappointed because Christ had been crucified, and they said, but we had hoped that he was uh, the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. So we see over and over all of these people that were looking for this political kingdom to be set up. They were looking for the kingdom of Israel to be established as the governing authority on the earth and everything else to be under that. But as I said the mercy of God saw that the heart of man needed something different than that. So what is the nature? This is what I want to talk about uh, today. Is the nature of this kingdom and its citizens then. In verse 6, uh, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, again it says, For us, for, To us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. Uh, so the nature of this government of God is... First of all, that it's a spiritual kingdom. It is not a kingdom that we see with our eyes. It is not something you can point to on a map. Luke chapter 17, starting at verse 20, says this. This is Jesus talking. He says, Once having been asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, The kingdom does not come with your careful observation. Nor will people say, Here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. Uh, so, what we are saying here, then, what Jesus is saying here is that the kingdom that he is setting up, the kingdom of which he is the governing authority, the sole governing authority, that kingdom doesn't come with our observation. He's saying to all the people who believe that eventually it's going to be set up in one place on a map, that my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is something that is established in heaven, and then it is poured into the hearts of God's people, the subjects of the kingdom, and then the culture of God's kingdom is brought to earth through those very subjects, through the citizens of God's kingdom. It is a spiritual kingdom that is established where God is. We are the citizens of God's kingdom as we are saved in Christ. And as we are saved in Christ... The culture of God's kingdom is at work in our hearts, transforming us. We reflect that then to the world around us. And in that then, the culture of God's kingdom is established on earth. And we'll talk about that a little more as we go. But the point I want to get at for here today is understanding that the nature of God's operation is spiritual. The nature of God's operation is what happens in our hearts. Now that might sound like an elementary thing. That's something that we in the church would know. That's an answer we know. That's something we know that the Bible says. But too many times we don't act that way. 
You see, we've talked about before that we can get into the place of doing all of the religious things that we do. We can get to the, come to the place where we do all of the Christmas things that we do. We can, uh, we can be teachers. We can be, uh, you can be a pastor and have no, nothing going on in your heart with God. Just because you have a title on you doesn't mean anything. You see, what, at, the, at its elementary foundation, what we are saying is that my Christian relationship with God is what happens inside me. It's my desire to apply the things that God has, in, has established in His Word because I know that that's life. I know that it's refreshment. As His Word says, it's, it's renewal. It brings light to us. It lights our path. That I have a desire to know Him in my heart. There's nothing else that possesses my heart. There's nothing else that is a greater... uh, I don't have any greater desire in my heart than to know who He is, to be established in Him, and then that I would reflect who He is. You see, when that's my desire, then I can come to the place where somebody says something offensive to me, I don't have to hold on to it forever. Because my desire, then, in my heart, is to have a relationship with God and for him to uh, establish his characteristics in my heart, for the foundation of my heart to reflect his character and to love the way that he loved. You see, everything that we do in, in our faith should be about uh, understanding and desiring that the condition of our heart would reflect the character of God. There's nothing else that matters. Again, that sounds like an elementary thing, but we have to understand that first and foremost, before everything else that we do as believers, my heart has to be fixed on God. My heart has to desire to reflect who He is. We talked about Wednesday night that, you know, we talk a lot of times in, in churches about wanting to see unity. And we can try to organize events, we can do things like that to try to establish unity in a church, but that doesn't do anything. Being in a room together, being in one place doing one thing the same way, doesn't mean that people are united. Unity comes as I look off to Christ and desire to walk the way that He walked, and then you look off to Christ and desire to walk the way that He walked. And then the next person does that, and the next person. And as we individually are looking off to Christ, desiring to walk as He walked, desiring that I would reflect the culture of His kingdom, as that is each individual member's desire, then we are united. And not just here in this place, we are united with the people down the road that reflect the culture of God's kingdom. We are united with the people across the world that reflect the culture of God's kingdom. You see, unity comes from a place that transcends the earth. It isn't something that happens from our organization. And it's not just unity. Everything that we do, the power to advance God's kingdom, the power to see people one to Christ, everything that we do comes from heaven. It is our source of power. It is our source of being. It is our source of hope. Everything that we have as Christians happens in our hearts and it is poured into our hearts from the place where God dwells. 
And as he pours that into our hearts, the culture of his kingdom, then we are united with believers everywhere. And people will finally see that there is something different about the people of God. The point is that the nature of God's kingdom is spiritual. It transcends the earth, and the culture of that kingdom is poured into our hearts through the working of the Holy Spirit, and then that overflows out of each member into the world around us. Uh, Then we see the work of his kingdom. Uh, In verse 7, Isaiah 9, starting in verse 7, it says, Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness uh, from that time on and forever. So again, his government then, says the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. There is no end to the effect, the possible effect of his kingdom on the earth through us. You see, there is never a moment where I stop growing. There is never, I don't care how long you've been a Christian. I don't care how old, uh, how old you are. There is never until you draw your last breath, there is always greater depth that you can go to. There is always something more that you can understand. There is always more peace. There is always more mercy that we can step into in God. The Bible says that His mercies are new every morning. That there is something new for you today that wasn't there before. There are mercies that are available for you today that weren't necessarily there yesterday. There will be mercies for you tomorrow and the next day and the next day that weren't necessarily the same today. You see, what we're saying is that the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. The increase of his authority in our lives, the increase of the culture of his kingdom, and the peace that comes with that, it will never end. It is something that I can have in greater measure every day. And it's available. It's not something that God ever withholds from His people. It is there. It is there for us to step into if we would walk with Him. If we would desire in our hearts nothing else in a greater way than we desire for the culture of His kingdom to be established in our hearts. The work of his kingdom is done through his people, as I've said in 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 4. It says, As you come to him a living stone, rejected by men in the sight of God, and chosen and precious, you yourselves are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then in verse 9 it says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So what he is saying here is that under the old covenant, when these people had rejected God for a king and they had done all of these, all of their worship was in this literal temple that was physically on earth. They had a location that they went to to be able to worship God. He's saying that no longer exists through Christ. We see again as he died on the cross, 
The curtain of the temple was torn from the top to the bottom, meaning that the, holy, the most holy place where God dwelled, that it was an open door. Through Christ, that it was an open door for us to walk into. The Bible says in Hebrews, it says that we can boldly and confidently approach the throne of grace. We can boldly and confidently approach God now. We don't have to do it through a priest. The Bible says we are priests now. You see, what he was saying in that moment, and he's saying in 1 Peter, is you, not, there's not a temple anymore. It's not a place on a map. But you and I, individually, as the culture of God's kingdom is poured into my heart, we are becoming the living stones of God's temple. We are his dwelling place. And we carry that everywhere that we go. You see, when somebody comes to me and tells, wants me to tell them about Christ, I don't have to get out a map and show them, well, if you go to here, you can see more about God. Or if you go here, then you can worship God. I don't have to do that. Because I am a living stone. I am a priest. And Christ does his work through me and through you. It says then, again in verse 5, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. You see, the significance of this is that God is taking men from the place of death to life. He is building men who were totally unworthy into his spiritual temple. He is taking in that announcement where Isaiah prophesied the coming Messiah and he said, for you, to you, for your benefit, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulder. He is saying to the people, not, not, we can't just think of all the Israelites in the past that rejected God as king because we have rejected God as king. At some point in our lives, we have rejected him as king. He is saying, for your benefit, the people that have rejected God as king, a son is given. And the government, the culture of God's kingdom, is the authority of God's kingdom, everything that there is, is on his shoulders. It is under him. He bears it all. It hinges on him. And for your sake, he is coming and establishing you then as the building, the temple, that houses the culture of God's kingdom. And as living stones, again, we carry that culture everywhere that we go. You see, we can never misunderstand or take for granted the significance of the mercy and compassion of God. You see, if it was up to us, if we were king, not many of us would turn around and give our mercies new every morning to the people that had rejected us as king. There's not many people that would do that. But the infinite mercy of God has looked on man with divine pity and seen the helpless estate of man. And again, as we've talked about God's hospitality, that as a hospitable God, he has invited us who chose, we who chose to be strangers, he is inviting us as strangers back to his table to have fellowship and peace with him. The work of God's kingdom is done through his people. Last thing I want to look at quickly is uh, the certainty of God's kingdom. In verse 7, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on. The zeal of the Lord Almighty 
will accomplish this. If you turn to Daniel chapter Daniel chapter two. <clears throat> This is there's there's a lot here, but uh, I think it's significant that we look through this quickly. So King Nebuchadnezzar had had a dream, and he was looking for someone to interpret its meaning, and he brought in all the people, and uh, nobody could interpret the meaning, and somebody had suggested that they would get Daniel. Uh, because he could uh, interpret the dream, and so Daniel comes in, and uh, that's where we pick it up here, is, is Daniel talking with the king about his dream. G- Daniel chapter 2, starting in verse 31. He's, he's telling the king what his dream was. The king did not tell Daniel what the dream was. Daniel was telling him first what the dream was, and then he interprets it. In verse 31, he says, You looked, O king, and there there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron and the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold were broken to pieces at the time uh, and became like chaff on the threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will interpret it to the king. You, O king, are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air wherever they live He has made you ruler of them all. You are the head of gold. He's talking to Nebuchadnezzar right there. Uh, Verse 39, after you, another kingdom will rise inferior to yours. Next, the third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom, yet it will have some uh, some of its strength of iron in it. Even as you saw iron mixed with clay, as the toes were partly iron, uh, partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than the iron mixed with clay. Uh, in verse 44, in the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut of a, out of a mountain, but not by human hands. Uh, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold pieces. So what he is talking about here in this uh in this dream, as Daniel interprets this dream, uh, he is talking about, uh, uh, if you go through history, you see that, uh, you know, the head, the, the chest, the legs, and, and the, the toes, and you see that uh, he talked about four kingdoms that would be coming. And if you go through history, you will see this very clearly. You see the Babylonian kingdom, 
and then you see the Medo-Persian kingdom, the Grecian kingdom, and then you see, uh, as he talked about, the divided kingdom. That would be the Roman kingdom. And and it was one kingdom, but it was divided. And, and maybe one of these days we can get into all the history of all those things. But this prophecy was talking about the divided kingdom, the Roman kingdom that was in power when Christ came. The Roman kingdom that hung Christ on the cross. And when Christ hung on the cross, and he died and he was buried again, he crushed that kingdom. Crushed the kingdom because he set up his kingdom, the Bible says, that would never be destroyed. In the days of these kings, in the days of what kings? The Roman kings. In the days of that kingdom, the God of heaven would set up a kingdom that would never be destroyed. In the days of those Roman kings, that is exactly what God did. He set up a kingdom that we can be certain of, a kingdom that is transcends this earth, a kingdom that isn't dependent on borders. It's not dependent on what other countries are doing politically. It doesn't matter. None of those things matter. The God's kingdom is was set up and established by Christ. It transcends this world. It comes from the place where God dwells. And you see, this is so significant for us because we live in a day where nothing is sure in this world. Everywhere you go, uh, it's, truth doesn't exist anymore. Now, we know the truth exists. But most of the places you go, truth doesn't exist anymore. If you... If we cannot in this day, and, and I'm not limiting it to this subject. This is one illustration of a greater problem of humanity. If you cannot look on a baby that is born and have some concrete idea of a gender, there's nothing else left. There's nothing. There's nothing that you can look at it and say, that's sure. This is what this is. It's immovable. It's, and it's not just that issue. There are multiple other issues. It's, I, I don't, again, I don't want to limit it to just that. It, it, there's a lot of things where people don't want truth to exist anymore. But what I am saying to you is, we are living in a world where, according to man, everything is movable. And you understand that's not sustainable. You can't live that way. Eventually, it's going to come crashing down. And you understand, this is exactly what he's talking about. In the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. You understand, there is only one kingdom that is guaranteed to last. There is only one. Now, are we going to walk in that kingdom? Are we going to be people that would allow the culture of that kingdom that is sure in steadfast and never fails, are we going to allow that to be poured into our hearts? And out of that, reflect his kingdom, the culture of his kingdom to the world around us that is tossing like the waves of the sea. You see, people are going to be looking for something at some point. Eventually, somebody is going to come to you and say, you know what, these are the things I hear all the time, but it just doesn't seem like this is livable, not having any truth. Eventually, somebody's going to wake up and see that, and they're going to want to know what truth is. 
It's not possible to live that way. One generation might, a couple generations might, but at some point, somebody's going to wake up and think, there's got to be something sure. Human experience dictates that. It has to be. There has to be something. For us to be rational human beings, there has to be something. This is the last thing I'll say as the worship team comes up. You understand, for for us to be conscious human beings, for us to be able to rationalize truth, for us to be able to have some sort of communication with other each other, there has to be something that is immovable. Because if there's not a God that exists, if truth doesn't exist in Him, then everything that I say to you is the result of chemicals reacting with each other in my mind, in your minds. That is not something we can trust. Everything that somebody does is a result of what's happening chemically in their mind. That is not something that is livable. It's not possible to function that way. It's not possible to live that way. It's not possible to know truth that way. Truth exists in God alone. And eventually, I don't know how long it will be, but somebody's going to be looking for that truth. And the question is, if we have that established in our hearts in a way that we can then express and reflect that culture of God's kingdom to those people who are looking for something that is concrete and immovable, the people that are tired of being tossed back and forth on the waves of the sea. Are we willing to be those people today? God, we thank you today for the opportunity to worship you again. We thank you for your kingdom that is established, that is sure, that it never fails. We thank you that the government of that kingdom is established on the shoulders of your son. That he is the one in authority, that he is the one who has all power. Father, we thank you that you were so gracious and merciful that you would look on a people that have rejected you as king. And he would invite us then to be your dwelling place on this earth. Father, we're humbled by that message today. Help us to be people who walk in truth, that are established and rooted in truth. We would build our lives on the solid foundation of your word. And Father, then when other people come looking for a solid foundation, that we would be able to reflect your kingdom to them. Father, we love you today. It's your name we pray. Amen.